So, and now let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for, um, for today and for bringing us here together. Bless Mako, Lord, anoint her, fill her, Lord, with supernatural strength and power, and God, speak to our hearts through her in Jesus' name. Amen. Janie gets surprised. She popped up here. I said, you got to make it quick. And she made it quick. So thank you, Janie, for being efficient and covering everything. All right. Well, good morning. How are you guys? Raise your hand if you're confused by this weather. <laughs> I feel like last week I was putting my child in shorts, and then I was like, oh, we can't do that today. <laughs> so... I'm just, I guess we need the rain, so that's good. All right, well, we are continuing our series on stories. You know, what's your story? And there are parables. There are so many parables in the Bible. We've already covered a few of them. And so our format has been to kind of hear a story from somebody in our congregation. And today I'm going to read a little bit of a story from uh, Miss Sheila over here. Miss Sheila, just give a... (laughs) And so... What's important about these stories, and I'm probably going to condense it a little bit because of the time, but what's important about these stories is we can read these stories in the Bible, these parables, and they seem maybe cute and stuff that we've heard about in Sunday school. But as adults maybe who are, you know, facing medical challenges or we're trying to pay our mortgage or we're trying to pay medical bills or whatever, whatever the case may be, Sometimes it seems like these little parables are so trite and cute and they don't have any power for our life. But I want to tell you that they do and it's important. And when we hear stories from people in our congregation are like, this is what my life was like. This is my story. It is very encouraging to me personally because it says that the stuff that's in the Bible is not trite and it's not cliche and it's not just relegated to Sunday school for little kids. It's applicable and it's living for us today. So I'm going to just share a little bit. I'm going to condense a little bit of Miss Sheila's story. She was gracious and let us use it. Miss Sheila talks about this woman. You see, Ms. I don't know if you guys know Miss Sheila. Miss Sheila, would you just stand up? Sorry, I'm going to totally embarrass you. Wave your hands. <laughs> the wave. You can do the wave. <laughs> okay, so Miss Sheila always has a smile like that. And it is not fake. She doesn't mumble under her breath when you say hi and she's smiling. She just always, she's just beaming. She just beams the love of Jesus. And I remember the, the, just, she has gone through incredibly hard, difficult things in her life. She lost her father when she was six. She lost her dear Willie. A lot of us were around when Willie passed away. Sudden heart attack. Um, I think you guys were getting ready to go away for a vacation, right? Or preparing for a vacation or something like that. Just, and what is so, and and there's a lot in here too, and I'll get to some of it, because it it ties into our story today about the persistent widow. Miss Sheila, though, is always smiling. She always has a kind word. And for the type of stuff that this woman has gone through, you would expect the opposite, for her to be just bitter and consumed with hate and not have any hope. But the opposite is true. I'm going to read a little bit of her story. Um, it's an amazing story. You should turn it into a book. <laughs> I just want to say that. All of the stories that we've gotten. Kathleen Benzies was amazing. Um, Hunt. Oh, what's her first name? Help me. Lisa Hunt's story was profound. I mean, these stories are just amazing, but they're so encouraging because it says that we have a God who's active. You know, he's active and he's involved in our lives. All right, so she starts off. I'm just going to jump into um, 
when she was 21, if that's okay, that part. All right. <clears throat> so as I said to preface this, um, she is talking about how she had a dad that she loved. She adored him. I'm actually going to read the part where she, because this is just so poignant. One of the first memories I had of my childhood was seeing my father in all of his glory on top of an apartment building next door to where we lived. My father was a construction worker, and brick mason, and his company was contracted to build apartments next door. I was around five and had been sent outside to the back steps away from all the other children because I had chicken pox. <laughs> you guys ever had chicken pox? I have <laughs> had chicken pox. It's no fun. I sat and cried for what seemed like hours because I was alone. It was a beautiful sunny day, and as I looked up, possibly to pray, I remembered seeing my father staring back down at me. To me, he was larger than life itself. He stared down, and I stared up. Then he waved. My world at that moment was made whole, and I knew that I was not alone. Okay, then we fast forward to when she was 21. I was 21, and life was not enough for me. In my mind, I was convinced that I had no worth, no place, and nothing to offer anyone in this life. I was completely deceived and in a very dark place in my life. I was in a dead-end job. I had been robbed at gunpoint. I felt alone, lonely, and worthless. I don't know about you guys, but I've had days, I've had periods where I've felt like that, where it just feels dark, and you're just like, and you're crying out to God. And you just, you know, I've been married for 16 years. And, but during that time, I felt alone. I'm like, God, where are you? And you just feel alone. You're just like, ah. And you're trying to claw out and you're trying to reach out to God. But it feels like there's no light breaking through the clouds. All right, so Ms. Shuley is going through this dark time when she's 21. And we're going we're gonna to fast forward here to 2011. In 2011, my husband, Willie, or her, her late, thank you, late husband, Willie, um, and I came to Granite Creek. We were immediately and openly welcomed, as only Creekers can do. We were invited to Ed and Deborah Pallison's home group and instantly felt at home. My husband started a Sunday morning Bible study, and all was well. Then on December 24, 2012, my husband suffered a massive heart attack and was comatose for 13 months. That was the most difficult time in all of my life. But for the first time in my life, I didn't feel alone. I heard the Lord gently whisper to me and say, trust me. It reminded me of how Peter must have felt when the Lord asked him, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? I was comforted by the voice of the Lord, but also was a little taken back to hear the Lord whisper to me to trust him. After all, I thought I already trusted the Lord. I had no clue as to how much I was going to have to put my trust in him into action. Okay, we're going to fast forward uh, until de to December. Now, on Sunday, December 29, 2012, I came to church and fell on my face before God on behalf of my husband, myself, and my family. Again, I was not alone. I was amazed at how my sister Creekers fell on the altar right alongside me and began to bear my burden the way the Lord said in his word. I knew I was not alone. 
The days passed, then weeks and months. I had a birthday celebration for my husband while he was in the hospital, still in a coma after three months, and people actually came to support me, even those in leadership. It was amazing. And I was overwhelmed by God's love through his servants. No, we don't share genes or blood or DNA, but the Creekers showed themselves to be my true sisters and brothers in my darkest hour, and I am happy today to be called a Creeker myself. Well, we love you too. We're, we're, we're glad that you're part of our family. All right, then we're going to fast forward again. One day I met with my husband's doctor to discuss his progress. After meeting with the doctor, I went to my husband. He looked as though he was relaxing in front of his favorite sports program on television. The pain was gone from his face. The tears were no more, and he was at peace. I held his hand and looked into his eyes. This time, for a brief moment, our eyes locked, and I knew that he would not be with us much longer. Later that week, my husband passed, and I knew that I would be okay because the Lord had told me to trust him. I knew that I could now because he had shown me many times that I could. I was sad for my children, myself, and my family, but I was so happy for my husband because I knew that he was in my father's arms. Then, not long afterwards, <laughs> I just love how she puts this, I was having a talk with the Lord. <laughs> I can just see you just talking in the car, and just in the grocery, dear Lord, I need to talk to you. I prayed and said, Lord, your will, not mine. Not long, oh, I expressed to him how I really was not feeling the whole widowhood thing. <laughs> I prayed and said, Lord, your will, not mine. Not long after that, a very distinguished seasoned gentleman started to call. He was an old family friend of my family, a very good friend of my oldest brother. He and I had briefly dated in 1975. We talked on the phone and via text for several months. Of course, I spoke to the Lord about him and heard the Lord crystal clearly say, he's safe. So I asked the Lord to give me a sign, and he did. During my very... During my very next conversation with a gentleman, he flat out told me that he wanted to be my Boaz. That was my confirmation. Before he could finish the next sentence, I was planning our union. We were married on June 4, 2014, the same year that my late husband passed. And now I am extremely happy. I am truly loved and feel safe because I have experienced God's love for me and that I can trust God in all areas of my life. God knows the plans he has for me, and they are good. You can too. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, and on all your ways acknowledge him, and he will direct your paths. Blessed is the man who puts his trust in the Lord. Amen. What a story, Miss Sheila. You know, I remember too, when you were going through that. I mean, you were obviously upset and crying, but she never cursed God's name. She never was like, God, I'm out of here. <laughs> and what do I, I want us to get what's important, what I most admire about her accounting here and her lifestyle too, frankly. There were so many times where Miss Sheila could just give up on God and say, I'm out. You said you were going to be faithful. Where's your faithfulness, God? Where are you? But she kept pressing into God. She kept, 
hitting her knees. She kept talking to God. She kept going after God. And I think that's encouraging for me personally, but it should be a big encouragement to us. We're going to read a story about in Luke 18, 1 through 8, and it's about the persistent widow and the unjust judge. So if you want to go ahead and turn to your Bibles. Thank you, Ms. Sheila, for sharing that. Very courageous. What a, what a, thank you for entrusting us with this, this gift. What a, this is a part of our spiritual heritage, you guys, here at Granite Creek. This is part of God's faithfulness to us. So thank you, Ms. Sheila. All right, so we're going to read this story. Can we get that picture up, too? There's this famous painting by this British dude named John Everett, Malay, and he painted this picture. <laughs> this is the, the widow in this parable, and she's coming to this judge, and she's trying to get justice for her case. It's kind of stretched out. Can you guys see? Can... All right. Well, let's go ahead, and we're going to read this. This is Luke 18, 1 through 8. And just for context, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, and he's trying to prepare them for his leaving the earth. He's going to go be crucified in a couple chapters, and he's going to ascend, and he's going to be gone. But the disciples still don't get it, because in the prior chapter, they're like, so Jesus, what do we... What are we going to do next? And he's like, you don't understand. I'm trying to prepare you for what you're going to do next on your own. And they don't get it. And so he's trying to talk to them and say, no, no, no. I'm trying to prepare you guys for when I leave. I'm going to equip you guys because you will be facing hardship that you haven't even begun to plummet. So he's trying to equip them and talk to them and I love the disciples because I I identify. It takes God like 50 times to get through to me. But let's read this. So that's the context. He's trying, and this is interesting because it's a parable that he is speaking to them. It's not usually when Jesus, most of the parables were to crowds of people. But this is specifically to his disciples. Let's read it together. It's Luke 18, 1 through 8. One day Jesus told his disciples, a story to illustrate, and I'm reading it from the Living Bible, so maybe you have in the NIV, and it's NIV up here, so it might be a little different, but one day Jesus told his disciples a story to illustrate their need for constant prayer and to show them that they must keep praying until the answer comes. There was a city judge, he said, a very godless man who had great contempt for everyone. So in other words, he was a total jerk. <laughs> Uh, Verse 3, a widow of that city came to him frequently to appeal for justice against a man who had harmed her. The judge ignored her for a while, but eventually she got on his nerves. I fear neither God nor man, he said to himself, this is the judge, but this woman bothers me. I'm going to see that she gets justice, for she was wearing me out with her constant coming. Verse 6, then the Lord said, If even an evil judge can be worn down like that, don't you think that God will surely give justice to his people who plead with him day and night? Yes, he will answer them quickly. But the question is, when I, the Messiah, return, how many will I find who have faith and are praying? So we read this story, and it obviously echoes um, a lot of similar themes and kind of things that that Ms. Sheila had said in her story. What we're going to do first real quick, too, is 
first of all, we have to ask, why is Jesus using, he's teaching his disciples, right? The, the, main, the main character in this story, though, is this, this, wood, this widow. And Jesus, all the disciples were who? Sorry, ladies, but most of them were men. They were all men. And most of the men were capable of going out and working. They were fishermen. Um, they, they weren't. And if you were a widow in the ancient Near Eastern culture, which, which this is from, when you married into a family, you, left, you cut ties with your family, basically. Basically, your family disowned you if you married into your, fa- uh, to, uh, your husband's family. So your husband's family becomes your family. Now, so what happens is you get taken in by this family. Your family disowns you. Now, when your husband passes away, and this widow, we understand, didn't even, she was just, she was all alone. She had no relatives. Because sometimes the relatives of your husband's family would take you in. But this woman is the most destitute of the destitute in this story. She is standing alone. There is no, um, there is no male representative with her. She is completely and utterly all alone. She has no advocate. She has no friend. She, she wasn't able to start a Facebook campaign and say, come support me, or she couldn't do a GoFundMe page for her legal fees. And, and as we're talking about this, I don't want you to think, well, are God's an unjust judge? Like, we have to pound down the doors of heaven? That's not the point. The point of this story, I just want to tell you up front, and I'm going to keep reiterating it, God doesn't want us to give up. God wants us to be persistent and persevere. That means even when life sucks and it's horrible and we can't even get out of bed and pull the covers down. When we want to stay in bed, we want to put the covers over us, turn out the lights, and lock the doors. God's like, don't give up. Fight. Fight and pray. And that's what I love about Miss Sheila's story. Even when she didn't have any oomph, and she felt completely the opposite, and she was ready to throw the towel in, she hits her knees and she prays. She crawls to God. I was reading this story about this woman. Her name was Jill Moss, and um, it was on, she gave us, uh, she talked on um, NPR. And she, at the time, was a college student who, um, she was writing her thesis, and so she thought as part of her thesis, it would be, uh, she was doing um, physiology, and so she thought she would do research and enter the Ironman in Hawaii. So she gets in there, and she, and she wants to, you know, she's writing her paper on endurance. How far can you push the human body before it collapses? Ironman's a place to learn about that, right? So she's in there, and she's running. She's doing great through all the different obstacles or all the different sessions. And she, um, towards the end, she is two miles ahead of second place. And she's like, I'm doing pretty good. She's got a 20-minute lead, which is huge. So she's booking it. She's doing great. And then a couple hundred yards before the finish line, and you can watch the video. It is just like, it is gut-wrenching. So... She is like, she starts to shake, but she, and her legs are stiff, but she's still going. She's still going. And then all of a sudden, she, she collapses. Her legs just give out. 
and they're trying to help her, and she shakes them off, and she gets up, and she tries to toddle down. And she falls again. And she gets up, and her legs will not cooperate. Her body has shut down. It is done. And her story as she was narrating this on the radio was profound. I had one of those um, parking lot moments. I was supposed to go in the grocery store, but I'm stuck in my car. And I'm like, I can't get out right now. I have to listen to this. What's going to happen? What happens? And so she just talks about how she just was like, I could see the finish line. I could see it. But my body wasn't cooperating. So she crawled on her hands and knees to the finish line. And towards the end, she, she couldn't really, like, even be up on all fours. She just had to pull herself. And she talks about how she was, um, she pooped her pants. She's like, I pooped my pants on national TV. Because it was, it was um, telecast uh, by ABC Sports, NBC Sports, one of those. And she's like, I pooped my pants on national TV. I was crawling in front of a, an audience of thousands and in front of everybody, I peed myself. She's like, and I think I even maybe I puked water. She's like, but I wasn't going to not cross the finish line. And she had her eyes on that finish line. And as soon as she touched it, she just completely collapsed. Like her body was done. And I was listening to that, and I thought, man, that is true perseverance. And I think a lot of times we get to the place in our life where we want to tap out. We're like, God, this is it. I've, I've reached my limit. And God's talking to us, and he's like, no, 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 you don't understand. I know your legs are going to give out, and you just feel like you feel like you're done. But guess what? Tap into me. I am your source. I will give you juice and energy. I will put gas in your tank. I mean, we see this in Miss Sheila's story. All right, let's actually, I'll stop gabbing. Let's look at the text, actually. All right, now, we know that this is not a story about how God is a cruel God, and if we just pester him enough, he's going to answer us, right? No. What is this about? Verse 1, 18.1, what does it say? One day, Jesus told his disciples a story to illustrate their need for constant prayer and to show them that they must keep praying until the answer comes. Jesus is telling them this because he knows that they are going to face hardships beyond their wildest imagination. He's like, the only thing that is going to keep you going is, 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 is having communion with me, and it's constant, because that is really what prayer is, you guys. Prayer isn't about getting in the right posture Having a nice, I mean, how many of you guys saw War Room? <laughs> that was pretty cool, right? Okay, so this woman clears out her amazing walk-in closet that's got beautiful shoes and clothes, and she makes it her prayer room. That is, that is important to do something like that, but more importantly, God is after our heart. Are we constantly in conversation with God? Or do we just come to God when we're up against the wall or life sucks or we're, hit, we're, we're hitting a rough spot? Or are we constantly in conversation with Jesus? Like Miss, Jesus, like Miss Sheila was saying, she'd have conversations. She'd be like, Jesus, we need to talk. We need to talk. 
You know, are we engaged in that conversation? Because that's where, that's where we are supplied with, with energy and stamina that we don't have inside of us. As I, you know, I'm a nerd and I like to read about um, how the brain works and psychology and all that stuff. And, and this article I'd read a couple weeks ago was talking about, and what she had talked about too, this woman, um, Jill Moss, that did the Iron Man, it was part of her research, she said that our brains actually are the ones that shut off way before the body maxes out. So it's like mentally we get to the place where we're like, oh, I'm done, I can't do this anymore, I'm, I'm tapping out. And that's the same for us emotionally. We get to the place where we're like, I can't do it anymore, I'm done, that's it. But in reality, so we have a finite amount of, of gas in our tank, mentally and emotionally, which is true. And quite often, we stop. And we're like, I'm done. My, my tank is empty. But Jesus comes along, and he's like, guess what? I'm going to supply the gas. You will have an infinite supply of gas. I will keep you going. Do you guys remember the story of the widow in um, the Old Testament? Uh, was it was Elijah. He comes to her and he's like, I need to eat. And she's like, you know what? I, um, she's like, it's just me and my son. We're getting ready to die anyways because we're going to run out of food. She's like, all I have left is a little bit of oil, a little bit of flour. And I need to, we're going to, that's our last meal. And God tells Elijah, he's like, ask her to make you a meal out of this, this oil, this last bit of oil and this last bit of flour. And so he's like, okay. So he asks her and she says, well... I was saving this for our last meal, but I guess we're going to die sooner rather than later, so okay, I'll make it for you. And do you know what God does? He, for the rest of her life, keeps that oil canister full. That's what Jesus does for us. We submit to him. We give to him everything that we are. We submit to him. We don't have any reserves. And we say, I am out of gas, and I, I confess that before you. I have nothing left to give. And Jesus takes that, he takes our emptiness, he takes our desperation, and he says, this is what I'm going to give you in return. I give you an eternal supply of gas in your tank. I remember when my mom was dying, and um, she, had a, she had a breast cancer that had metastasized everywhere. And one of the places that it spread was her brain. And I... It was, it was some of the darkest days of my life. And she passed away like six or seven months ago. So, you know, I'm still processing this. But I remember one day, one particularly dark week, where the brain tumor had just kind of started to invade everything. And um, I had taken her to the doctor. And we're sitting there in the doctor's office. And she starts doing this with her walker. And she's got her ear down to the walker. And I'm like... I'm like, Mom, what's going on? She's like, there's music coming from my walker. I was like, uh-oh. <laughs> so he's like, Mama, there's, there's no music. It's just your walker. So she goes, okay. So then a few minutes later, she starts going through her purse like crazy. And I'm like, Mom. And I, I just thought, well, maybe she'll stop. She keeps digging around, digging around. And finally, I can't take anymore. I'm like, Mama, what are you doing? <laughs> She's like, <laughs> 
and it's funny and we can laugh. It's okay, because there's, there's humor in dark moments too. But she's like, she's like, there's miniature elephants running around in my purse. And I was like, Mama, I said, there's, there's nothing in your purse. It's just your wallet and your stuff. There, it's, she goes, no, can't you see them? She's like, they're hiding. I said, no, Mama. There's no elephants in your purse. Anyway, she had continued. So the, later in that week, too, she, she just continued to digress. And I remember sitting in the room. And she had fallen asleep, and she woke up, and she didn't know who I was. She didn't know where she was. And I just, my heart was breaking. This is a woman that had been a great champion on my behalf. She had stood with me through thick and thin. And she, at this point, kind of had the mental capacity of a toddler. And I was just devastated. And I just was crying out to God. You know, we had to put her in diapers at this point. I thought, really? Like, what? And I just remember I was crying out to God. It was like, God, this isn't fair. This is not right. You need to change this. And I was just, I was just like, ah. I remember beating the floor in her room. I sit next to her. And in a still, small voice, God said, my grace is sufficient. I will supply you with the strength that you need. And God was faithful because there were many, many, many more dark days and it was, and it just seemed like, you know, every time we'd go back to the doctor, there would be more bad news. You're like, can it get any worse? I was like, nope, it, it does, it will. But God was always saying, my grace is sufficient. My grace is sufficient. And so what I want us to get from this is this woman, this widow here, she has nobody, she has nothing, she is all alone. She has, this, this judge that she goes to was, was probably based off of the type of judges that the Romans installed to do justice. And they would sit in the, 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 um, you know, the city court, and people would come up and they'd have their case heard. Well, these judges that the Romans installed were called robber judges, and they were called robber judges because if you paid them enough, they would, they would vote, they would, they, would, um, they would rule in your favor. This woman has nothing. She has nothing. She can't even bribe the judge. And she goes before him by herself. She doesn't have any friends. She doesn't have any male relatives to be like, come on, let's go. We'll go with you. She doesn't even have a neighbor that she can take with her. She's got nobody. She is not even in the same social hemisphere as this judge. You know, it talks about, let's see, in verse, um, verse 2. It's important. It says, a very godless man. Okay, so he's godless. So he doesn't have any moral compass. He doesn't care, right? And then he has what? Living Bible says he has great contempt for everybody means he was a heartless man. So this little woman, with her case, somebody obviously has been taking advantage of her, we know, from verse uh, 3. 
And she goes before this judge, and she wants justice. She is seeking justice. Can you imagine how much courage it would take? And as I was studying this, I was like, what would compel this woman to go by herself? She has nothing to bargain with. She has no leverage. She has no blackmail on this guy. She's got nothing on this judge. She is a nobody to this judge. And yet, from the text we know, she keeps going back and bringing her case again and again and again and again and again. And I thought, what motivates somebody to be that persistent like that? When you are so down in the dumps and you feel like everything is stacked against you, what motivates you? What propels you? I think from Ms. Sheila's story, the answer is, you know, the, the widow eventually gets justice. And, and the point of the story isn't that if we keep ding-dong in God, he'll get it. But what God wants us to get from this, he wants us to persevere. He wants us to push on. Don't we, Paul talks about this over and over in Corinthians, Philippians, Ephesians. We're in a race. And God is interested, so in a race, and it's not a sprint, you guys, it's a marathon. I, I used to swim in high school, and I'd do sprints, and then occasionally I would do the, it's called the 500, it's 20 laps. You have to pace yourself. Well, the first, so I was used to doing sprints, right? Jump in the water, it's a 50. You go up and down, and it's like over like that. And so then I transitioned from, I'd do that, and then I thought, well, I'll do a, I'll do the 500 too. Little did I know, 20 laps. So the first race I did, I jumped in the water, and I'm just booking it the first four laps. And after four laps, I just kind of ran out of gas. I was like, oh. So I was still trying to push through. I finished dead last, and here's why. I used all my gas in the beginning, and I petered out. I didn't, I didn't adjust accordingly. I had in my mind that this was a sprint. And that's what our Christian life is. We are not in a sprint. We are in a marathon. Which means we have to adjust our thinking. And that thinking has to be, God, there's, as I was preparing for this, there's so many verses that talk about um, how God wants us to persevere. Not because he's cruel. Not because he's evil. Not because he's wanting to make us jump through hoops. It's because he wants us to be mature. James 1.4 says, Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. See, a lot of times we think this is it. This is where we're going to end life. This is it. Right? This is the beginning. We are going to spend eternity with Jesus. And I think we think, well, we go to heaven, we're just going to be playing harps and jumping on clouds and doing all kinds of stuff like that. No, we are going to be living in heaven, you guys. Like, it'll be us, but better in heaven. And we're not going to be playing harps and we're not going to be bouncing on clouds. But here's the deal. What we do here on earth, how we live on our life on earth will shape 
how we end up in heaven. Does that make sense? It's not like we will automatically go through this amazing car wash and Jesus will be like, oh, there you go. What we do here matters. This is why James 4 is important. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be what? Immature, happy, joyful? No. Mature and complete. We, are, we, we belong to Jesus, right? We're part of Jesus' family, right? That means there must be a family resemblance. We need to look like Jesus. That is God's ultimate goal, that we look like his son. And unfortunately, that happens most often when we go through hardship. It's like God uses the chisel of hardship. And let me say this, God's not the author of hardship. God's not like, I'm going to make you suffer just because I can. No. But God will allow circumstances in our life that will shape us if we allow it. And if we say, God, I am so done. I am so at my end. I can't do this anymore. And we cry out. We cry out like the widow in this story. You know when it says that she, um, when the judge was really so annoyed with her? In verse uh, 5, he says, you know, I'm going to just grant her because she's wearing me out. Actually, in the Greek, it's kind of this play on this word where, on this idiom, this Greek idiom is, I'm, I'm going to get a black eye. The judge was so worried about her, and obviously she wasn't going to give the judge a physical black eye, but he was worried that she was going to besmirch him because she was so persistent. He's like, if I don't take care of her, I know she will ruin my reputation. Do we have that kind of persistence with God? We need to have this. God's like, and, and what will give us energy and encouragement to get through what we're going through is prayer. Is if we jack into God, we say, I can't do this. I need to tap into you. I want to leave us with this verse. It's 2 Corinthians 12.9. And this is the amplified version, so it's got a lot of extra words. Well, the one I'm going to read you is. But he has said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. My loving kindness and my mercy are more than enough. Always available regardless of the situation. For my power is being perfected and is completed and shows itself most effectively in your weakness. Therefore, I will all the more gladly boast in my weakness so that the power of Christ may completely enfold me and may dwell in me. Can I have the band come up and the ushers, please? There's this story, and this is what I want us to get to. When we call out to God, and, and this is why maybe you're like, well, why did God, if God isn't supposed to be this judge, like, and God's not evil like this judge and not heartless, why did he use a judge? It's contrast. Jesus told his disciples, if there's this evil, wicked judge that was willing to, and heartless, and he was willing to give this poor widow 
what she needed, how much more am I going to give you? I am your loving father. I want to dote on you. I want to pour out my love and my grace on you in buckets, so much so that you can't contain it. We need to ask God. We need to petition God. He's just waiting to pour himself out on us. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, God, thank you so much that you're a good, good, good father. And Lord, that when we ask for a loaf of bread, you don't say, that's too bad, here's a stone, knock yourself out. You say, here's, here's the keys to the bakery. Lord, we love you. We pray that you would bless this offering, God. It is a small sign to say we love you and to give back to you and to put your mark on our finances, Jesus. We love you so much, and we thank you that you are not the unjust judge, but you're a good father. Amen.